0: We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV, and you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, DACE. That's D-E-A-C-E. So, go to crtv.com and sign up today. Levin Malkinstein, all for $89 a year. If you go to crtv.com today and use the promo code DACE, it's time to end Obamacare now. For the past eight years, we have been suffering under President Obama's ridiculous policies, the worst of which, Obamacare. And you know why it's bad it raised premiums, it decreased patient choice, and it made people even more dependent on government. But when President-elect Trump takes office on January 20th, we can finally repeal Obamacare. But there are liberals in D.C. who are conspiring to save it. And the only way we can stop them is if we get grassroots activists like you to stand up to them and pledge to help President-elect Trump repeal Obamacare on day one. So stand with President-elect Trump and go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. Get involved. Help repeal Obamacare. If you don't act now, we won't be able to make a difference. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we need to repeal Obamacare on day one. And that's why you need to go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. It's time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works.
3: Steve Dace Show underway for a Wednesday. Steve is out. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, in as he's still on his customary end-of-year vacation. We'll try to tread water and keep the lights on till he's gone. I'm here along with Steve's web editor, Todd Erzin. As always, though, if you want to talk to Steve, our boss, while he's gone, you can send him an email, steve at stevedace.com. You can find him on Twitter, at steve Dace show. Or search for him on Facebook by searching for Steve Dace. That last name is always spelled D-E-A-C-E. If you want to interact with Todd and I during the show, you can do that. I'm on Twitter at Dace Producer. Todd is on Twitter as well at Dace Online. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, last night's show. It's going to be kind of uh, more of the same, a little bit uh, different tonight as well. Last night we talked about some of the uh, stories behind the best-loved songs of Christmas, Christmas carols. Tonight we're going to be talking about some of the stories behind the best-loved Christmas tradition with uh, Ace Collins. He'll be joining us uh, up into hour number two. And in hour three, we'll be hearing a message uh, Steve uh, gave recently to his home church where he's on the preaching staff. I know most of you tune into the Steve Dace show to hear Steve Dace, so you'll have a couple of opportunities to do that this evening even though he's gone. But for the first couple of segments, uh, it's going to be some more nightly buzz type of uh, content for you as we uh, go back and uh, look at what's uh, making the rounds around the water cooler and on social media. We'll give our hot takes as I give you some stories, starting with this one. For the first time, atheists and other non-religious persons... Are explicitly named as a class protected by the law. President Barack Obama signed into law the Frank Wolf International Religious Freedom Act. The new law protects atheists, humanists, and other so called free thinkers around the world from religious persecution. Congress passed the International Religious Freedom Bill protecting atheists, humans, and humanists. ...and other non-theists last week with overwhelming bipartisan support... ...and Obama signed the legislation into law last Friday, December 16th. The new law explicitly protects atheists, humanists, and other non-theists... ...and upgrades the 1998 International Religious Freedom Act. In particular, the new law states, "...the freedom of thought, conscience, and religion is understood to protect the theistic and non-theistic beliefs... ...as well as the right to profess or practice any religion." The act also condemns specific targeting of non-theists humanists and atheists because of their beliefs and attempts to forcibly compel non-believers or non-theists to recant their beliefs or to convert this is this would normally if we if we had a, a, a culture a society able of self-governing able of drawing distinctions uh, this would be a great uh, law um, but guess what don't we have don't we have freedom of speech already isn't that isn't that one of the amendments in the Constitution? It, it, doesn't that already don't don't we we already have protections for freedom of thought, freedom of religion in this country? See, this this act isn't about freedom of of any of that. It's about
4: it's propaganda.
3: It's propaganda. It's exactly what the lead of this story says. For the first time, atheists and other non-religious persons are explicitly named as class protected. By the law, so they could be triggered. They could be triggered by any religious display, and who knows that could uh, that could mean the government uh, will be sicked on Christm- uh, Christians with even more ease as they are now.
4: And it's no coincidence that this is happening in the immediate shadow of going after the Rainbow Jihad, going after Chip and Joanna Gaines, of the the, the last two years we've had of going after uh, Florists and banker Bakers. It's not mere coincidence. All of this. Is born out of their insecurities. There's no. When's the last time you heard of a, a legitimate story? Because we would hear mm-hmm. about a story uh, from the mainstream press of an atheist?
3: No, it's always the atheist. Well, yeah. from the mainstream press, yeah, n- nothing like that. If anything, you hear about atheists uh, sicking uh, their lawyers on Christians for displaying the Ten Commandments or the Nativity in public. That's what you hear the news about, and that's not even the mainstream
4: media. But they're actually t- talking about protections against being uh, p- persecuted, basically. That, where has this ever happened? What, anyone, please, tell me. Now, not indirectly happened, where somebody who happens to be an atheist got picked on for some other reason and then projects his cause onto the world. Well, you know, we don't care. We really—we— we, we, We like talking with you. We like debating with you uh, as Christians. Mm -hmm. Yes, we hope you come uh, to the truth uh, as we've come to believe it because we believe eternity depends on it. But um, we're not losing sleep about your existence like you lose sleep about ours.
3: Yeah, because there's a difference, Todd, between atheists and anti-theists in my mind. And feel free to to correct me on any of my thinking here if, if you wish. But in my mind, an atheist is someone who uh, just believes there is no God, which to me is nonsensical, but is cool with you believing whatever the heck you want to. Kind of a libertarian uh, type of mindset. The anti-theist is the Christopher Hitchens or the Richard Dawkins type of person who is not uh, content with you believing whatever you want to believe, they must also sick their beliefs about whatever they uh, pops into their head. They also have to sick their beliefs on you and uh, the entire uh, rest of society just because they are offended at the very notion of
4: At you. least a guy like C- Christopher Hitchens, though, uh, at the end of his life, yeah. he, he was—, he was uh, going on, on campuses, uh, doing debates yep, with Christians, yep. and he he was very—he uh, spoke of them— uh, as well-intentioned, highly likable, Mm -hmm. worthy of debate, intellectually honest. He was not disparaging their whole person like the kind of people we're talking about. I'm glad
3: you made that distinction, because Christopher Hitchens is a guy who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't think I am, he debated William Lane Craig. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, he debated William Lane Craig, who is one of the foremost Christian philosophers and debaters, uh he he's debated him before a guy like richard dawkins has never done that and a guy like richard dawkins spends most of his existence trying to uh, belittle christians in whatever ways he can uh next story government regulators in the uk have given a green light to the creation of three parent embryos to combat mitochondrial disease clinics must apply for permission to offer mitochondrial donations to patients the hfea Will first assess a clinic's suitability, looking at existing staff expertise, skill, and experience at the clinic, as well as its equipment and general environment, and then grant permission on a case-by-case basis to treat individual patients. This is—I'm going to let you take this. This time. is
4: mad scientist stuff. I, I, of course, but this is like with um, embryonic stem cells, you, you, wrapping it around the fighting of disease when. I I know less about this particular issue, but mm. with it, with it, there was never any ground gained on that embryonic stem cell research. There was plenty on uh, adult stem cell research. I th- I think that they just scientists just don't believe uh, many scientists, I should say, that there are moral and ethical limits. They constantly must be pushing those uh, boundaries, and I, I don't ex- I, I expect this is going to go to f- far darker places than it leads. to. To any light There's a movie with Will Smith called uh, I believe it was called I Am Legend Where it's mm-hmm. an apocalyptic yep. thing But the, the reason human existence gets wiped out Is because they thought they had created a cure for cancer In that movie And they inoculated everybody with it And it, I that really speaks to me I, We get so high in our hopes For what scientists can do Because it, it's, a, it's an idol worship they, mm-hmm. they want to be God so badly yeah, it's that's their version of creation, and would it be so that we could cure cancer? And what a gift that would be from the scientific community! But tread so carefully here. I I, 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 from my point, from my Christian worldview, this is immoral on its face. Human life comes into existence through God by one man and one woman. Period. End of sentence. We are breaking that in the extreme in this case and you can wrap it up in disease fighting all you want it is you are playing with the loaded gun and you're pointing it at your head
3: well said next uh... next uh, story quickly in their uh, desperate attempts to paint the incoming trump administration as anti-semitic the cuffington post has found a story they think will really stick national security Advisor general mike flynn met with heinz christian strash head of the Austrian Freedom Party a few weeks ago. Strasch is an ally of Vladimir Putin's. The Freedom Party is a far-right European nationalist party. The Huffington Post's headline, Mike and Reich, Flynn Met Leader of Ex-Nazi Party. You know, Journalism uh, is...
4: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of this. This is just our life as we know it, and sometimes... It is going to appear pure hyperbole on the part of Journal. and other times both sides are going to be wrong because they're going to be overreacting. We know Trump is going to be involved in some crazy six degrees of seven heaven bacon that everybody's going to wince at, and perhaps rightly so.
3: Well said. We'll have more in just a few minutes.
2: You're listening to Steve Steve Dace. Wake up, America, before it's too late. The Steve Day Show.
3: Welcome back to the Steve Day Show powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve is gone. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, along with Steve's web editor, Todd Erzin. And this is the last uh, story uh, or the last um, show you'll hear with the regular crew. Uh, The next couple of evenings, you'll have a best of show and uh, Shannon Joy will be filling in uh, for us uh, in the next uh, couple of evenings as well. And something that's really been brewing over the course of weeks now, and I can't say that I'm not surprised that it's gotten this much traction, Todd, uh, but this controversy, this in-show controversy that we have going on, it really needs to be dealt with, and I figured since this is the last night and this is the last segment that I'll have really some opening uh, time to do so, it, it needs to be said, and it needs to have a proper defense on the show tonight. It is the song that I'm still getting emails about. I'm still getting tweets about. Most of them are actually positive. Most of them are. Uh, I, I don't know what Steve is talking about. Why are Why are you so hard on Alan Parsons? He produced this song. Why are you so hard on Alan Parsons' uh, project uh, and things like that? The, the actual song that I'm talking about is Year of the Cat by Al Stewart, and I think it just needs to be. I just need to tell you why I love it. Okay. Gird this, your loins, America. This, Here it comes. First of all, this chord pattern and just starting off with the piano, I think that's always a good move. I wish every pop song started off with just pure piano. And it lets it sustain a little bit. See, and what I love about this song, it's almost seven minutes long, uh, six and a half minutes long. It doesn't try to rush anything. I love that. And then now you have the actual rest of the band kick in. This is nice. This is good driving music, is it not? That sound you hear right now is Steve
4: uh, wondering, Dear God, what have I done giving the show away
3: like this? And I I mentioned the first time we talked about this that I'm not a huge fan of the lyrics. Basically, the lyrics are about a guy who went to a third world country, saw a beautiful girl, spent the night with her, lost his bus ticket, so he had to stay in this paradise, (laughs) I guess. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of, of the lyrics or the vocals. Al Stewart kind of has a little bit of a lift.
4: I, I love Aaron, listening to Aaron tell you all the bad things about one of his favorite songs. I never said this is one of my favorite songs. Musically,
3: <laughs> musically, this song is awesome. It's and I don't. I mean, it's Year of the Cat is some sort of I don't know Southeast Asian thing. You gotta admit this is pretty groovy, Todd. I mean, just the music—the music, the music alone—is is real groovy. And I think the problem with—not the problem—I think what's what's made what makes my musical taste so much superior than everybody else's is that I was classically trained uh, when I was young. I've been playing the violin for almost 20 years. But I also listen to oldies, like music from the 60s and 70s, side by side all that classical music. So I'm like on both ends of the musical spectrum here, and you get messed up musical, I mean awesome musical tastes like mine.
4: Here's, here's my end of the musical spectrum. This song isn't heinous or anything like that, but it is the classic definition of a song. If I'm listening to the radio in the car and this comes on, I instantly go channel surfing and find something else.
3: What about it do you not like? It'll just help me to understand.
4: Uh, it's just uncompelling in every way, shape, and form to me. Now, again, you—you you, your musical background is important. You, you can hear musical nuance on this that I, I can't... I, plus, I just love the fact, that, as I've told you before, that... Not only have you not shied away from this, you steer into it like, When Steve's gone, we're playing it! Maybe for the whole show! How
3: do you like that, America? Because I don't care! I love that. Oh, mercy, that's exactly what I'm like. This is my favorite part right here, by far. This orchestral part.
4: Now, I am a huge Uh not-to-step-over-your-favorite part, but I am a huge fan when, uh, like, Metallica has brought in
3: whole orchestras. Dude, Metallica and, like, Muse and some of those bands that you think are really hard, most of their, like, most of the roots of their music are actually Baroque and classical, if you listen to it hard enough. Leonard Skynerd and those types, and it's like, eh, whatever.
4: So when are we just going to have a segment of you playing violin?
3: Never. Never? Never. Never. And this, I love this as well. And then you have the electric guitar solo, and then you have a saxophone solo. Like I said, this song has absolutely everything in it. And it's like six minutes long, and I can listen to it over and over and over again. I have said my piece.
4: And speaking of over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. I I think that describes the the Twitter bomb that we just launched. (laughs) I mean, the conversation about this segment... It's, it's going to be a thing of legend.
3: You know, it was fun working on this show, and it was fun working with you while it lasted, Todd, but I've, I um, here I stand, I can do no other.
4: And let it be said, I, I just work here. Aaron did this all on his own. I had nothing to do with it.
3: <laughs> so I got a question the other night, um, not necessarily pertaining to this, but I thought I'd launch this uh, up for grabs. On the topic of music... Uh, Eugene Ohm uh, said the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 2017 inductee list is open for voting, uh, and it had been open for voting until December 15th. The list of nominees uh, included Tupac Shakur, Shaka Khan, and Juan Baez. Never heard of those. Uh, Joan Baez. Joan Baez. Hey, look at that. Uh, Some of the the, uh, nominees included Journey's Wheels in the Sky, Cars Living in Stereo, Yes, in Around the Lake, uh, Electric Light, Orchestras, Evil Woman, or Strange Magic, and Steppenwolf's uh, Born to Be Wild. Out of those songs, are there any that like stand out to you, Todd?
4: What was the first one by Journey? Uh, Journey's
3: Wheels in the Sky. Wheel- Wheels in the Sky to keep on turning.
4: That's probably the one that sticks out to me the most, but that's even, you know, bef- just Is as my before musically yeah. coming of age was... I, went, I wonder when Wheel in the Sky... I mean, that's 70s. Right. I I was a, but when I, in 1980 I was eight,
3: really? Yes. Oh wow! Uh, but definitely on that list. I mean, I like I like that song, uh, Electric Light Orchestra's uh, "Evil Woman." That is that is a fun song, mostly because there's a lot of violins in it. But it's an interesting question. So as I uh, mentioned a little bit ago, the inductees uh, this year: Pearl Jam, Journey, yes, Electric Light Orchestra, Joan Baez, and Tupac Shakur. It's, I mean, it's really interesting, and I've, I've said this before And on however serious this segment can get, which is not very, I love the music of the 70s and 80s. I think so much better music, uh, both lyrically and musically, was made back in those days. And I, I don't know why. I don't know if more people were um, classically trained and kind of have that background, or if it was just a, a time of, of maybe better inspiration and, more drugs or something like that but uh, music to me back then is so much better than it is than it is today i don't know if you ever listen to pop radio today todd but it's it's not good
4: not much i will say the one name pearl jam speaks to me i mean that is the heart of college for me pearl jam nirvana just before that in late high school guns and roses that's where we lived back then
3: understood we'll have more in a moment on the steve day show don't go anywhere
2: Listening to Steve Dace. There's left, there's right, and then there's right. You've come to the right place. It's the Steve Dace Show.
0: And finally, this evening, some good news. Welcome back to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. The name of the book is The Great Good Thing. A secular Jew comes to faith in Christ and award-winning author, writer. um, Andrew Clavin, joins us now here on The Steve Day Show. And uh, Andrew, it is a pleasure to have you with us tonight. How are you, brother?
5: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. So... This is a story about how an agnostic uh, Jew uh, came to be baptized as a Christian. That is not a story you hear every day. What is the story behind the story here, Andrew?
5: Well, you know, it's it's pretty uh it was a pretty long story. There's no miraculous flash of light in it, but it's basically that I was raised in a Jewish home where I was taught, sent to Hebrew school, taught prepared for Bar Mitzvah. I was Bar Mitzvah but all the time, uh, my parents really never believed in God. My mother was a stone atheist, and my father kind of hedged his bets a little, but there was no there was no God in my religion. And so it began to bug me from a child on. I just started to think, well, wait, you know, what's the point of all this? It's not that there was anything wrong with Judaism. It was just that this was an empty structure that I was being ushered into and told was important. By the time I was born mitzvah, I felt like a complete hypocrite standing up in front of people and saying these words that meant nothing to me. And in fact... Uh, not that long, about six months after my bar mitzvah, I put all the gifts I had gotten at my bar mitzvah, uh, the money and the savings bonds and the jewelry and thousands of dollars uh, worth of stuff. I put it in a leather box and I snuck out at night when everyone was asleep and I threw it away because I felt that it was ill-gotten gains that I had been given for um, for saying these words I didn't believe. And that was supposed to be the end of my relationship with religion. I mean, I just didn't want to know part of it. And I went into a world, I became a writer, a screenwriter, a novelist, uh, you know, a journalist, and was living in a world of New York intellectuals, Hollywood show business people, where atheism was the default setting. You know, if you believed in God, especially if you believed in Jesus, you were a rube. You know, it was not something that sophisticated people did. And when you're living in an atmosphere like that, you don't even realize you're breathing it in. You know, it just stops you from thinking certain things. And so, even as my life progressed and I began to get go into a terrible depression, I mean, I've, as I say in the book, I've lived two lives. I've lived two very distinct lives. Up until the time I was 28, I was a very messed up guy, uh, always depressed, getting you know helpless, kind of to fashion my own life. And I finally, at 28, I just I cracked up. And I went to a shrink and the shrink saved my life. And suddenly I was full of joy and suddenly my marriage was great and my kids were great and all this stuff. But I still, I was in this world where you simply did not believe, you know, it just didn't happen. And so things began to bother me, you know, like about this world, you know, everybody would say, well, there's no such thing as absolute morality. You know, it's just one, one country has one culture, another country has another culture. Mm-hmm. They're all the same. You can't make any judgments. And I'm looking around with my eyes, you know, and just saying, that's not true. People are saying, even the people saying it don't believe it's true. And this is something that has bothered me my whole life, is the, the idea of saying something that you know in your heart you don't believe, you know. And everybody does it. People say, well, it's multiculturalism. You know, you can't, you can't pass judgment on the way the Saudi Arabians treat women. This is a different culture. And the thing is, yes, you can. You know, you can. And you can do it with confidence. And so over a slow period of time, it began to occur to me that really this was just a lie of the age. I was being swept away in a tide of relativism and atheism, and I wanted to step out of that tide. And I realized that in order for there to be a morality, there had to be God, there had to be a moral arbiter, there had to be something absolute in the the spiritual world, not just in the real world, in the physical world. And with that, one night, almost without knowing it, and I was always already in middle age, I was already in my 40s by the time this happened, I was a successful writer. I was winning awards. My books were being made into movies. You know, things were going great. And, and one night, almost by just casually, I decided I was going to say a prayer. I was reading the novel. I was lying in bed reading a novel. And the character in the novel said a prayer before he went to sleep. So I thought, I'll say a prayer before I go to sleep. And I said, thank you, God. And I went to sleep. Three words. And I woke up the next morning, and the world had changed. Everything had changed. I mean, suddenly life was more real. Things were more clear. My own emotions were clear to me. My feelings were clear to me. And suddenly the whole world had become a richer, deeper place because of these three words that I had spoken almost arrogantly, to be honest with you, almost like just throwing them out there as an experiment. And so, and so I'm not I'm not a fool. I realized a good thing when I saw one, you know, and I started to pray every day.
0: Andrew Claven is here with his new book, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. So, Andrew, when we come back, I want to ask you, when you started to pray every day, what happened? We'll get the answer to that here in a moment.
2: You're listening to Steve Dace.
0: So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? you'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is, your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. And there are progressive, radical, liberal phone companies spending tens of millions of dollars to remove conservative leaders from office and fight for liberal social change. So what's a patriot like you to do? Well, you can start by calling my friends at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. You get the same quality service, competitive prices, and you get to help causes you believe in. Call Patriot Mobile right now at 800 a patriot or go to patriotmobile.com. Mention promo code Steve at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to 2 lines. Call 1-800-a-patriot or go to patriotmobile.com. Mention promo code Steve.
2: When you're upsetting everyone, you know you're doing it right. You are human tennis elbow. You are a pizza burn on the roof of the world's mouth. It's Steve Dace.
0: Your Clavin is here with us. His new book, The Great Good Thing. A secular Jew comes to faith in Christ. And Andrew, before the break, you were telling us that you started to pray every day. Now tell us what happened. How did God respond to your seeking of him?
5: Five years go by. And in five years, as you know, good and bad things happen. You know, you lose people you love, and you have successes, and things are good, and things are bad. Mm-hmm. I noticed that through prayer, my life became joyful, even in tough times. And when I say that, don't get me wrong. I don't mean i was a happy idiot, you know, walking around saying everything's great. What I mean is that even when thing, when I was in grief, at periods when I was in grief, I was filled with a sort of vitality of life and understanding that life was heading in the right direction. And one day after five years, when this had completely transformed my attitude toward life, and remember, I was coming out of a dark place. I had been through some real darkness. I had been through some real joy. And now I was in a totally new place. And I drove up. I was living in California in Santa Barbara at the time. And I drove up into these beautiful hills. And I said to God, you know, Gee, over the last five years, talking to you has changed my life. You have given me everything. You have given me a new joy. You've given me a new perspective, a new depth. Everything really I was looking for as a kid, you've suddenly given me through prayer. What can I do for you? You know, you're God. I'm just some schmo, you know. How can I I repay you? And almost as if a voice were speaking to me. I mean, it was not a voice. It was so clear, so absolute. This, these words came into my heart, well, you should be baptized. And I just burst out out loud, sitting alone in my car, I just burst out, you have got to be kidding, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I, I, my, my father had once told me, my father was very hostile toward Christianity, and he had once told me if I ever converted, he would disown me. I, I was a grown man, and he and I were never close, but we had reached a separate peace, and it meant, like, blowing up my family. And I was also just afraid of losing my sense of reality. You know, I'm a a hard-boiled writer. You know, I write crime novels, thriller novels about crime and violence and sex and and real life, down-to-earth real life. And I was terrified that I would become some happy-go-lucky Christian novelist, you know, G-rated Christian novelist who thought everything was sunshine and flowers. Mm -hmm. And nobody had sex and nobody experienced lust and nobody, you know, uh, those kind of Christian movies that you see that don't really represent real life, you know? And, and so it was a really difficult thing to decide. And I went back, I had read the Bible as literature many times, never as a believing person, but I went back to the Bible and I thought, Oh, what if it's true? You know? And I started to examine my life. And that's what this book is. The book is the examination of my life to see if I had gone wrong, if there was something wrong with my thinking, or if this voice that spoke into my heart knew me better than I knew myself. And ultimately, it became very, very clear to me that I believed the Gospels to be true. And that, which is the only reason to believe, by the way, there's no reason to believe Christianity or anything else unless you think it's real, unless you think it actually describes reality. And that was the conclusion I came to because it made sense of everything. It made sense of the way people behaved, it made sense of the way the world worked, it made sense of every single thing that happened to me in my life. I thought, well, gee, that's pretty good evidence that this is the, the real thing. And the funny thing was, I mean, my, my conversion was as dramatic as anything in the book because I realized, you know, I'm a public person, I do interviews like this one, I realized there was no point, I, I couldn't, like, not tell my father what was going to happen. And uh, he came out, he and my mom came out to visit us in California, and I thought, well, this is going to be <laughs> an explosion. But before I could say anything to him, he told me that he was seeing double, and uh, he had to go home. And it turned out that this was his final illness. He had a brain tumor. And I realized, well, I'm not going to break his heart in the last six months of his life. That would just be cruel. There's no point to that. And so I would fly home to New York to visit him. And at the same time, I'd be visiting my friend who was an Episcopal priest who was preparing me for baptism. I was living this weird, it was a weird double life as my father declined, and I was moving closer to baptism. And of course, if I wrote this in a novel, the editor would take it out as being unbelievable. But finally, when Passover and Easter came at the same time that year... And that was the week that my father finally collapsed and went into the hospital, um, and and so I sat with him as Easter approached and, and watched him pass, and then came back for his memorial and left the memorial and was baptized, and um, and instead of making me less realistic, it made me so much more realistic. Instead of making my writing become sappy and empty, I filled it with a new sense of truth, and it has been so much. It has. <laughs> increased my peace and and joy so much that I'm almost, there are days when I get angry at God for letting me take so long to get, you know, (laughs) days I think like, why'd you let me just wander around in the wilderness like that? But, but it's been quite a journey and I hope the book, you know, tells it straight. And I hope that it tells it in a, a different way than the people who tell you that if you embrace this religion, you're just going to be happy all the time, or everything's going to be great, or you're going to make a lot of money. Which I see people saying on television, you know, that this is going to bring you prosperity. That's not the point. The point is that knowing the truth is better than not knowing the truth, and knowing which way you're going is better than being lost. That it's it's that it really is that simple. That a life lived where you can see the North Star and sail toward it is better than a life lived in the dark. Everybody. Is living in this world in which the default setting is atheism, the default set, the default setting is no, now we have science and none of this old stuff, these old mythologies are true, and that it's just not true, but you can't get out of that tide and that's I guess why I wrote the book so people could see that what that effort looks like
0: Andrew, what you've described for us tonight is that when when Jesus says, Ask Seek, knock, right? Seek, ye shall find. Knock, the door will mm-hmm. be open. Um, asked, and it will be answered. That he keeps his word. It
5: is the strangest thing, or really not so strange, but it is a
0: continual
5: source of awe that all these words that you've heard all your life that are in the Bible, they, you kind of know them almost by heart, they suddenly leap to life, and, and they are profound and deep with truth. You know, and not just that, but you just said is absolutely true. You know, those those words are absolutely true. Uh, it's re- it really is remarkable. It's a remarkable that that experience alone is uh, worth the price of admission. It's a remarkable experience.
0: Well, this is a remarkable story. That's why you want to get the book. It's called The Great Good Thing: A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. Andrew Claven is the author. It's his story, and it's been awesome to hear him share it tonight uh, and. Especially in light of what has been a rather depressing election, it is good uh, to still get some rays of light. Thank you for joining us tonight, Andrew, and for sharing your story, brother. We appreciate it.
5: Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: God bless.
2: You're listening to Steve Dace. Got his finger on the button of truth. Put the finger down. It's Steve Dace.
0: Back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. You know, we've had an ugly political year. And that means the word refugee, for so many now, has a negative connotation. And and we understand uh, what happens when... You don't vet people properly. You import them into your culture. We're seeing what's happening in Europe as an example. But that doesn't mean there's still not uh, really a humanitarian crisis happening throughout the Middle East. And that's why this Christmas we are partnering with Heart for Lebanon. We want to take the gospel to those innocent children caught in the crosshairs of terrorism and being ravaged by war right there where they live. We want to take the gospel to them. We want to take it right to children like Manny.
6: Like so many children, violence was all Manny and his brother have ever known. The war in Syria forced his family to flee Lebanon, but for Manny, the war that was going on inside his home was even worse. Denise, the director at Heart for Lebanon's Beirut Hope Center,
7: explains. He was crying, he was bleeding and he told me that he's been crying. It was winter time, it was raining. His shoes had the hole and he didn't want his feet to get wet so he kept on crying and his dad was like we can't. You know, you have to wear the shoes. Go wear it, and he didn't want to wear it, and they wanted to wear it. And finally, his dad lost it, but he couldn't control himself, so he kept on hitting him until he was bleeding and was sent to school.
6: The abuse that Manny was receiving from the hand of his own father, coupled with all that this little boy had experienced in Syria, turned him into one of the most aggressive students we've ever seen at the Hope Center. When he threatened other students with a knife on the playground. Denise was faced with the difficult decision to remove him from our school. But Heart for Lebanon went into action, reaching out in God's love to Manny and his family. The change in their lives has been remarkable. The abuse at home has stopped, and Manny, once an aggressive, mean-spirited young boy, is learning the violin, his life transformed by the gospel.
7: Not only he became not aggressive, not only he's becoming, he's volunteering in our children's program with his brother, giving so much love and care to children that are in our centers.
6: Your gift of $98 will help Heart for Lebanon bring the gospel to 18 refugee kids just like Manny. Be a part of rescuing these children for Christ before someone else captures them for evil. Please give now. And thank you for being as generous as you can.
7: I've never thought I would be able to come to Lebanon and learn violin. I thank the Lord for that.
0: Your one-time gift of $98 is going to reach 18 children like Manny with the gospel. Call now, 844-441-9966, 844-441-9966. Or you can click on the banner on my website at com.
2: You're listening to Steve Dace. We are now about to witness the strength of marriage. This is Steam Days. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America! This is Steam Days.
3: And welcome back to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network on a Wednesday, Hour 2. Of course, Steve is gone. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, along with web editor Todd Erzin, who will be along a little bit later. Last night we had a, what I thought was a fascinating conversation, and really any conversation I've heard or i have had with this man is fascinating his name was uh, Ace Collins, and he is just one of the best uh, authors, I think, that I've uh, been around in my career, just in terms of <laughs> the number of books that he's written, but especially when it comes to writing about Christmas. His name is Ace Collins. He's got a new book out. Um, it's called The Most Wonderful Time of Year. Last night we talked about uh, his one of his uh, older books that is uh, still really awesome, uh, stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. Tonight we're going to talk about specifically his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And Ace, uh, thank you so much for, for taking quite a bit of extra time uh, to talk with us. But again, you're such a great uh, storyteller. I think uh, I think our audience could listen to you, and I know I could talk to you for uh, for probably hours on end, if, if possible.
1: Well, it's, it's probably part of my DNA. I, I learned how to write by listening to my grandparents tell stories on the front, front porch of in Ash Flat and Agnes and Salem, right. Arkansas, and so you're, you're in a situation where what I'm doing is no different than what my grandparents did. It's if I used to put it on written, I, I write it on paper. You know, they told the stories, but mm-hmm. I, I I've never considered myself an author as much as I have a storyteller. And and when you read my books, they sound a whole lot like you're just sitting around the table talking to me.
2: Right
3: now, uh, off the air, we were talking a little bit about um, you, you. Do a lot of these types of interviews? I know. Uh, around the country. You you um, had a really interesting four-hour stretch of interviews the other day that I thought was kind of interesting, and it's amazing how, um, I, I think where you're going with this, is amazing how Christmas can just draw all sorts of people together as one, kind of just putting, putting aside any disagreements. Um, but you, you kind of had a, a four-hour stretch the other day that uh, illustrated that, did you not?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're in a situation where you start the morning with the Canadian Broadcasting Company, you actually end up in, in the midst of that, talking to a food network about the, the food elements of Christmas, then you get into the New York, was it, no, uh, yeah, it was the New York Times called me about, uh, uh, one, no, Wall Street Journal called me about a specific song, Winter Wonderland, that they wanted the story behind, so we spent a long time with them. You end up talking to the Washington Post, Smithsonian. You, you end up on both conservative and liberal talk radio. Uh, you're all over the spectrum. And the, the, most inter- the most interviews I've ever done in one day were 14 hours. I did 14 hours of radio in one day. And, uh, and there are stations like the BBC, uh, KDKA, uh, and other networks that have me back. Uh, every year, we become kind of a tradition. One of those ones that has me back every year is a, is a network called AgriTalk. And if you're not a farmer, you don't even know what AgriTalk is. But it's the agricultural network, and, and we have a lot of live call-ins. And it's interesting to me what people call in and ask about songs and traditions, and how that varies. If you're on secular radio almost always the songs that you get are songs about traditional carols. But I, I, I kept a tally last year on all the Christian radio I did. The first song, 90% of the time, I get callers ask about when they're on call-in shows on Christian radio is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. And I never get asked that song on, about that song on secular radio, but for some reason... That's a song that I get on Christian radio all the time I'm not going to tell the story behind it because we're about to talk about traditions today right. but I will tell you this the man who wrote that song was dared to write a song about that somebody would record about that had a person dying in the first verse <laughs> Because there had never been a hit with that before. He so, did that when he was at Vanderbilt University.
2: Oh, wow. And and, and
1: a husband-wife team, Patsy and Elmo, recorded it, and it became this classic hit. It is the only song this guy ever had published. Here's the funny thing about it is, what does the guy who wrote, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer Do for a Living? He's an air traffic controller.
3: Oh. <laughs> of course he is.
1: You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's it's part of the magic and the mystery of Christmas, and and. Each song, each tradition has an incredible story behind it. And I think once you know the stories behind the songs or the stories behind the traditions, be it Christmas cards, lights, trees, mistletoe, or whatever, uh, once you know the stories behind them, Christmas becomes a much more meaningful time for you. You look at things differently. You see things differently. And you understand why Luther tied that first candle on the tree and the lesson that he was trying to teach with it. You understand why that tree is, is in your living room you 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 begin to grasp the symbols of the season and how a lot of these symbols come out of missionary missionary work that goes back 14 15 1600 years and you also realize that if you put santa on a csi kind of show and took his dna you could actually trace that dna back to two very important historical figures nick nicholas of baria and a man that we now know a lot Latvian prince that we now know they were Christmas carol called King Wincelot.
3: Well, I think you're right that um, that the, the more you understand the background of why we have these traditions and what they mean, um, it, it, it ceases. well, it's Christmas, I don't think will ever, ever cease to be a little bit magical for all of us Just it's that time of the year. it's just, it's just something awesome. About it, but you are right. I think that um, Christmas will have a deeper meaning to all of us when we understand some of these songs, like we talked about last night, and traditions. So let's go back to the very beginning. One of the oldest traditions, of course, is gift giving. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, the the meaning and and reason for why we give gifts is obvious. But some of the story or some of the background behind. Uh, the wise men coming and giving gifts—that's something that people kind of um, maybe don't give a second thought to. What's the story there?
1: Well, you're looking at—they brought three specific gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that is a strange gift combination. Even at that time, it's not like that was a common gift that you gave children back then. Gold was only given to people who were royalty, you know. So you weren't going to give gold to a modest little baby born in a stable. Secondly, frankincense and myrrh were two spices. One was used for funerals. The other was used only by the purest of the pure, the holiest of the holy, the priest. Why would you give those to babies? Obviously, the wise men, or the kings from the East, however many there were, we, we in lore now, because there are three gifts, there are three wise men. The Bible never says how many wise men. There could have been tw- 10 or 12 that came to visit uh, Christ. And they didn't arrive the same time the shepherds did, by the way. But anyway, they they followed the star and they brought these three gifts that were unique. Well, they recognized that this was the Son of God. This was royalty. This is this was royalty far beyond any other king. So the gold made sense. You know, I, I like to think that the gold later on po- possibly helped finance some of Christ's works, some of his giving to the poor you know, some of the way that he ways that he took what he would receive and spread it to others, like he taught us to do in Matthew 25, 35-40, reaching out to the least of these. So, the frankincense and the myrrh, the holiest of the holy, they also recognized that Christ was the Son of God, a priest. Even before anybody else knew it, they understood it. How? I don't know. They also understood this tremendous sacrifice he was going to have to make, dying on the cross, hence the funeral spice. Those three gifts were specific gifts for a specific man. And they took a lot of thought and effort to, to pick just the right one. You know, my joke that I always tell my kids is there was a fourth wise man. He brought a fruitcake and was turned away. But, uh, <laughs> and he's, perfect. We've been trying to give away that same fruitcake ever since. <laughs> uh, you know, and actually I wrote a novel last year that was, that was, really well-reviewed, and a lot of people had fun with it, called The Fruitcake Murders, where I finally killed someone with fruitcakes just because I thought they ought to have a purpose. But anyway, these three gifts, we need to spend the same amount of time, I think, with this oldest tradition, the gift-giving, thinking about what gifts that we can give that will make a lasting impact, that will, every Christmas, we'll think about that gift, even if we still don't have it, and realize how much thought went into giving that gift to us. For me, I was five years old when it was an electric train that my folks got me. But I, I think there, there are gifts that that resonate for a lifetime. And rather than just going to the store and say, oh, this will do," you know, we need to put the same amount of thought in it and shop, if if you will, like a wise man. Right.
3: Talking with uh, Ace Collins, he is uh, an author and a great storyteller. Uh we're talking specifically about his book Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. Uh, Ace has also written a new book, his newest one out Christmas is called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year: A Countdown to Christmas. And when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, some of these best-loved traditions and we'll talk specifically about the Christmas tree. And I know Steve, uh, my boss, has, has shared the story of the Christmas tree before. And we'll hear that story maybe in Ace's own words when we come back. More on the Steve Day Show in just a few minutes.
2: Listening to Steve Dace. Liberty has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. This is Steve Dace.
3: And welcome back to the Seed Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This hour, we're talking again with Ace Collins. He is an amazing author and storyteller. His uh, latest book is called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, A Countdown to Christmas. This hour, though, we're talking specifically about his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And, Ace, before the break, I said I wanted to get into the story of the Christmas tree. And to me, this is probably, there there are a ton of great stories, which we'll get into later on in the hour, but this is probably one of my favorite stories about how the Christmas tree came to be what it is today, which is a symbol of Christmas, but even something more deep than that. Tell us uh, what the story is here.
1: Well, the Church has been using trees since really the beginning of the church. If you went back to the uh, Dark Ages in Eastern Europe, uh, trees were brought into the church, evergreen trees, in the wintertime for pageants. And, and they were brought in initially as the creation tree, uh, the Garden of Eden tree, and apples were hung on them. And they would play out the history of the Bible with children and teach children about the Bible through uh, these little plays. And so in, in that respect... Evergreens have been in the church for a very long time. Uh, missionaries, early missionaries, even a thousand years ago that were traveling across Europe, would would realize that the evergreen tree had a, almost a mystical power to the people that they were reaching because it was the only tree that didn't die in the midst of the winter. And so, or at least these people thought trees died and magically came back to life in the spring. And so they would actually use it as a track uh, the fact that it did not represented the everlasting life that you had when you accepted Christ as your Savior, the triangular shape of the tree represented the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the triangle that is talked about uh, in the New Testament. So, I mean, <clears throat> they were used before they were Christmas trees, specifically. Um, they probably were brought into homes for the first time in Latvia, and, um, And here's where it's really interesting. The Latvian Christmas tradition for 50, 60 years was to hang a tree upside down from the ceiling and then put homemade ornaments on it. I want you to think, just a second here, This is even though we're talking about a serious subject, Chris, I want you to think about if you've ever set a tree up, a live tree up, in a stand and had your wife helping you do it. And she's going, no, it's a little crooked to the left. No, no, got to bring it back. Imagine if you're on a ladder trying to nail that thing to your ceiling and get it straight, right. and get it to the perfect, the right place. I, I imagine there were some really good marital disputes in the hanging upside down of the Latvian Christmas tree. The right. French probably turned it over the first time and put it uh, right side up. And in Germany is when it really took off, the Christmas tree did. Once again, uh, with people like Martin Luther talking about the fact the evergreen represented everlasting life. It represented the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, in its triangular shape. And they hung ornaments on, a, on it, and in some cases hung even nativity uh, scenes on it. They would put uh, strings on nativity, different characters in the nativity, nativity scene and set it up in the tree. And, and it became a very important element of Christmas. The first, by the way, artificial trees, were made out of feathers and sold in New York in the 1800s. And the first tree stand or tree lot that you could purchase artificial trees in was created by a man named Carr in New York City in the late 1800s. And it was called, I know this is ironic, it was called a car lot. And so long before there were automobiles, they were already selling cars and Carr was already selling things on lots in, in New York City, and people could come, come in. He couldn't bring enough trees in uh, when he started opening up his lot huh. to satisfy the demands in New York City. Uh, Martin Luther was the one who first strapped a uh, candle onto a tree, and he did so after walking through the woods on a uh, clear evening and seeing the light shining through the trees and wanted to share that with his children. And when he lit that candle, he explained to them that the light that came into the world when Christ was born was was symbolized by the candle that He was lighting at that moment. That the world was a dark place until Christ came, and that candle represented the light. And so that was the beginning of lights on the Christmas tree.
3: That is incredibly uh, interesting, and um, these these stories, again, as we talked about in the opening segment, help us really. Uh, to develop a deeper understanding and appreciation for, for really what makes this time of the the year so special and uh, makes it the most wonderful time of the year. We're talking with Ace Collins about his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And uh, Ace, before this segment is over, we got another few minutes or so. What's the story with stockings specifically? Because we already have gifts. Where did the tradition of hanging stockings specifically on a fireplace come from?
1: It comes back to the time before um, Christmas was probably actually celebrated. Uh, Christmas started being celebrated, and the official day for Christmas was set about 3:30 A.D. Before that, they, Christmas was celebrated at different times, if it was celebrated at all. The church established December 25th and 3:30 A.D. at a council, and 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 even before that time, though, people were hanging stockings at the fireplace because they only had a limited uh, pair of stockings or two apiece. They would wash them out every night and hang them by the fireplace too dry. Nicholas of Baria, and how much of this is truth or how much of it is legend, I don't know, but Baria had a special association with his flock. He had been very, very wealthy, he had sold everything to become a priest, and then later, of course, became a bishop and a cardinal. He's now known as St. Nicholas, and he would go around at night to families that didn't have money for a a dowry because your, your girl couldn't be married if you didn't supply a dowry with her and put gold coins into stockings hanging by a fireplace. And later, his association with Christmas and what he did for the least of these in his time by also leaving trinkets for children and candy, hard candy specifically for children, in their shoes or in their stockings was transmitted to being a Christmas tradition of leaving stockings up, hoping that Santa or St. Nicholas or Father Christmas would leave something special for you as well on his Christmas Eve visits
7: By the sp- way, now,
1: another interesting thing that people, a little bit of trivia that you can go to parties and tell people, the string on the box of animal crackers that mm-hmm. you can buy at the store, the little boxes, that string is there not for you to carry it, but to hang it on Christmas trees, because in... Uh, 50 60 70 years ago in America those boxes were hung on Christmas tree and on when the Christmas day came the children were allowed to take the boxes off and eat a box of animal crackers huh
7: i
3: did not know that when i uh, when i was younger i certainly enjoyed the animal crackers that's for sure. sure i did not realize that was the story well, i go buy a,
1: i've got a i've got a i've got a tree in my office right now that has only pre 1945 ornaments on it <laughs> wow. and one of the things i've got on that box cuz we've got seven trees in our house but one of the things i've got on that box our animal cracker. Oh the tree,
3: our animal cracker box. That is incredibly interesting. We're talking with Ace Collins about his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas, and we'll have more with the Ace when we come back next on the Steve Day Show.
2: Listening to Steve Dace. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Steve Dace Show.
3: Christmas tree—that's one of the traditions that we've talked about—and coming up in the next segment, I'll give my spin on that uh, particular story. But for one more segment, we've got Ace Collins on the line with us. He is a prolific author, uh, an incredible storyteller. Last night we talked about some of the stories behind the great um, Chris—or songs of Christmas—and tonight we're talking about his book, *Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas*. One more that is kind of under the radar, at least, well, at least for me, and that is the story of mistletoe. And of course, we all know the tradition. If you're caught with, uh, at least this is this is the one that uh, pop culture has fed me anyway. If you're caught under the mistletoe um, with some uh, somebody you're supposedly attracted to, you're supposed to kiss them. Is that is that basically the uh, is that basically the, the story behind mistletoe? Um,
1: mistletoe, mistletoe, right now is that—that's what we have left of the original story, and it's a small fa- facet of the original story. Right. But uh, originally, when when missionaries went to Northern Europe, they encountered cultures, particularly the Druids, the Celts, and the Vikings, who had some very unique views uh, on life. And and one of the most interesting was they all looked upon the mistletoe plant as being magical. Um, I mean, here was a plant that was green with regular leaves that was growing out of what these people viewed as a dead piece of wood in the wintertime. And the missionaries found out something very interesting. Uh, if these particular people were had warring tribes, and these tribes were about to have battle, and they looked up into the trees and saw mistletoe, there was a law that said they had to find a way to create peace between the tribes. They were not allowed to fight underneath the mistletoe plant. That is how powerful they thought this plant was. Well, the missionaries saw this as a great opportunity, and they took a mistletoe, piece of mistletoe down and explained that if this was the plant of peace, this was also the plant of that stood for the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And they explained the story of the crucifixion. Christ had been nailed to a dead piece of wood but lived again. He did not die. The green of those leaves represented his eternal life. The white berries represented the purity of his sinless life. The red berries represented the blood that he had shed on the cross for these people's sin. These people heard that story, and many of them turned uh, to Christianity for their faith. And The missionaries would tell them, if you keep Christ in your life, even during the darkest days of winter, even during your most trying times, your faith will sustain you. Well, they started putting mistletoe over their doors to signify that they were a Christian family. And when their bride and groom got married, they had them marry underneath a mistletoe plant to remind them to keep faith. Over them, over the, this family, first and foremost, and that would sustain them. They were, in other words, the plant was to remind remind them of their Christian faith and the power that was in that faith to carry them through the tough times, the dark days of winter, if you will, the dark days of life. Well, naturally, what happens at the end of a m- marriage? People kiss, even back then. And over the course of the centuries, the the mistletoe uses of, of kind of like a track, if you will, a track without words but a track with symbols, Mm -hmm. was lost. The only thing that remains is the kissing element. But if you know the entire story, you can actually use it as a witnessing tool for others. And and it becomes exactly what the missionaries created 1,200 years ago, a track that you can use during the Christmas season. I, I think it's incredible. The other thing you can use is the fact that the lights, each, each color represents something different. The mm-hmm. yellow or the white light represents Christ and what he brought into the world, the light he brought into the world. The red light represents his blood that was shed. The green light represents everlasting life. The blue light represents the love of God who sent Christ to us. Each one of those those lights has a very specific uh, meaning to those who put candles on the tree 500 years ago. and. They might have been lost, but every, if every time you look at a light of, of any kind, a Christmas light, and you think about what Martin Luther said, this is the light that came into a dark world, I think you'll have a deeper meaning, have a deeper appreciation of what those lights mean
0: That's
3: and, a- and mean to all of us. That's absolutely correct. And, Ace, I think we all uh, we all have our understandings uh, deepened right now of some of these traditions and last night some of the songs. And just uh, can't thank you enough for joining us for a couple of different interviews talking about some of the songs and traditions. Thanks so much, Ace. You bet. We'll have more on The Steve Dace Show coming up next. Stick around.
2: You're listening to Steve Dace. Knowledge is power.
7: I've seen what it can do, and I want to learn more.
2: Gain more knowledge right here. It's the Steve Day Show.
3: And welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Thanks again to uh, Ace Collins, joining us uh, two nights in a row to talk about uh, and tell the stories behind some of the best-loved Christmas uh, carols and songs and some of the uh, best-loved Christmas traditions, and there are deep stories behind each and every tradition. One of my favorite traditions, and this sticks out to me in my memory growing up, I know I'm still young, but growing up, ...in southern I- Iowa, and it sticks out in almost everybody's uh, memory, I-, I dare say, is putting up the Christmas tree. It's one of my my favorite traditions, and this year, for the first time since I've been out on my own, I, I purchased my own Christmas tree. You now, I kind of cheated. I-, I-, I went fake, and I also went pre-lit... And I also forgot to get the little things that you uh, string up the the ornaments on. So I had to shove my ornaments onto the tree branches. I also forgot an angel to put at the top of the tree. Fortunately, I had a boxing glove uh, nearby that fit on the top of my tree just fine. And so that's been up there. If you want to see a picture of that, by the way, you can go to my Twitter profile, um, at Dace Producer. It's in there somewhere. But this tradition of the Christmas tree, where did this come from? And we talked about it a little bit with Ace Collins, but he didn't really tell the story that I like the most. The story from the church, the story from the Catholic Church, of why and how the Christmas tree, an evergreen tree, came to symbolize Christ's birth. And one of my favorite Christmas stories, or stories surrounding the holiday, is the story of Winfred, or the story of St. Boniface and the Christmas tree. Now, the story of the Christmas tree begins... In England, where the very young Winfred decided to enter a benedictine monastery over the objections of his parents. So Winfred grew in holiness and piety, but yearned to leave the monastery and bring the light of Christ to the pagan Germans, just as the monks had brought the faith to England just a century before. Winfred heard reports that Pope Gregory II had sent missionaries to Bavaria in 716 and decided to travel to Rome to become a missionary to the Germans. Pope Gregory was delighted at the, at the arrival of the eager Winfred and after a period of time commissioned him to preach the gospel in the regions of Thuringia Bavaria Franconia and Hesse in recognition of his special missionary commission the pope also changed Winfred's name to Boniface the newly named monk traveled to Hesse or central germany in 721 and with his tireless activity his gift for organization and his adaptability friendly yet firm character, achieved great success, including the conversion of the twin chieftains Dedek and Derewolf. Boniface spent the rest of his life evangelizing the areas of modern Germany in parts of the Netherlands. He also became a friend of the Frankish court and helped reform and reorganize the church in that area. From his missionary travels, Boniface knew that in winter, the inhabitants of the village of Geismar gathered around a huge old oak tree known as the Thunder Oak, dedicated to the god Thor. This annual event of worship centered on sacrificing a human, usually a small child, to the pagan god. Boniface desired to convert the village by destroying the Thunder Oak, which the pagans had previously boasted the god of Boniface could not destroy. So he gathered a few companions and journeyed into Geismar. His fellow missionaries were fearful and scared that the Germans might kill them. So they barked even when they reached the outskirts of the village on Christmas Eve. Boniface steadied the nerves of his friends as they approached the pagan gathering and said, Here is the thunder oak, and here the cross of Christ shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. Boniface and his friends arrived at the time of the sacrifice, which was interrupted by their presence. In a show of great trust in God and born from a desire to enkindle the fire of Christ in the German pagans, Boniface grabbed an axe and chopped down the thunder oak of mighty Thor. The Germans were astounded. The holy bishop preached the gospel to the, pe- to the people and used a little fir tree that was behind the now felled oak as a tool of evangelization. Pointing to this little fir, he said, this little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace. It is the sign of endless life, for its leaves are ever green. See how it points upward to heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There will be no shelter, no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. Awed by the destruction of the oak tree and Boniface's preaching, the Germans were baptized. Now you may have heard the story of St. Boniface up to that point. But what happens next is really quite astounding to me, even, even as astounding as what you've just heard. Boniface continued his missionary efforts into old age when in 754 he left for a trip to Phrygia with 50 monks. Their work was successful and many pagans agreed to receive baptism. When the appointed time came to celebrate the sacrament, a large armed crowd of pagans approached the missionaries. Knowing his time was to die was at hand, Boniface discouraged his followers from fighting and said, Cease, my sons, from fighting. Give up warfare for the witness of Scripture recommends that we don't give an eye for an eye, but rather good for evil. Here is the long awaited day. The time of our end has now come. Courage in the Lord. The ferocious pagan attacked, left Boniface and his fellow companions dead and celebrated as martyrs for the faith. We live in a time in this country, in this culture, that for some reason, and I think maybe it's clear, but I'll leave that up to you to come to that conclusion. I think it's clear why this story stands out to me. We need to have the righteous indignation and the holy courage to go chop down whatever thunder oak of the mighty god thor dominates our culture nowadays but when the pagans come for us return evil with good that's why i love this story the story of saint boniface and the origin of the christmas tree i hope you do as well we'll have more on the steve day show in just a little bit
2: Listening to Steve Dace. Everybody needs a hobby. So, what's yours?
6: Resurrection.
2: He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary?
0: Just as God gave us the greatest gift in Jesus that first Christmas, we have an opportunity to give our greatest Christmas gift this year when we can bring the gospel to a refugee child. Again, these are children. They are innocents. They are caught in the crosshairs of a humanitarian crisis, of, of, of war, of terrorism. And, and we can reach them right where they're at, through our partners at Heart for Lebanon. We can reach children like Meili.
8: Bombs explode, fathers and brothers are lost to war or kidnapped. Mothers flee with their children to the nearest safe country. For many, that country is Lebanon. 52% of refugees in Lebanon are under the age of 18. This is an overwhelming number. Too many innocent eyes have witnessed horrible things done to their families and friends. The majority of these children have been in Lebanon for several years. They cannot attend local schools, however, they are eager to go back to the classroom and learn. Heart for Lebanon's Children at Risk initiative is designed to meet their educational, emotional and spiritual needs. This initiative has three hope centers that provide the much-needed education and love that these children are missing. The hope centers teach basic English arabic and math but more importantly teach the love of jesus christ for the first time they are learning biblical character traits that help them live in community with others taking a child from a refugee camp to a classroom a hope center provides a safe and loving environment where children can learn after several months of being loved on and cared for children respond by returning the love and looking forward to each day at the Hope Center. Many children have asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior and have become the light in the midst of darkness to the rest of their family, introducing them to Jesus Christ.
0: For just $98, your one-time gift can reach 18 children just like Maley with the gospel. That's the best $98 you're ever going to spend. Call Heart for Lebanon right now, 844-441-9966. That's 844-441-9966. Or you can go to my website at stevedace.com. Click on the Heart for Lebanon banner right there on my website, D-E-A-C-E, at stevedace.com. One more time, that number is 844 441 Nine
2: nine six six. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace.
3: Hour number three of the Steve Day show underway on a Wednesday. As we did last night, this last hour will be featuring a sermon that Steve gave recently to his home church. where He's on the preaching staff. The name of this message is, What Does It Mean to Love? It's a Christi- uh, Christmas message Steve gave to his church. Here's part one.
0: Our culture is a little bit confused about what love is, what it isn't, and what it means to love, and the problem with that is, well, love is what all of us crave in this life most of all. It's unfortunate, then, that there's really nothing out there that can kind of help us to make sense of it all. We're just kind of on our own to make this whole thing up, so, oh, wait, wait. That's not true. We, we actually do have a helper. And our helper actually loves to help. So let us pray this morning and ask him to come and help us. Father, we, we want to know what it means to love like you. What does that mean? Show us this morning. Show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Show us what it means to love like you, and then give us the faith and the courage to go and do likewise. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible says, God is love, that we are made in his image. Therefore, for us to truly know what it means to love, we must love as he does. Let's begin to learn now with a Bible verse you've all heard since you were growing up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The number one thing we need to know about love, we need to know what it is in its essence. What is it? What's what's the essence of love? Because we'll talk throughout the course of the rest of this message of what love does and and what love's characteristics are, but what is it? Like we know water is H two O, we know relativity is E equals M C squared. What is love? What is the formula for love? Love as an essence is a motivation. Love is a motivation. Why did God give His only Son? Why did He send His Son into the world to save it and not condemn it? The first four words give us the answer. For God so loved. For God so loved. Say it with me now. For God so loved. This was His motivation. Love is not a mere feeling. And it is not just an action. I've heard some say and meaning well that love is an action. That's not a complete answer. It's not sufficient. It's more than that. It is the primary motivation which compels those things. It is the source of those things. That means when God scolds us, he loves us. When God prospers us, he loves us. When God allows us to suffer, he loves us. And when God spares us from this suffering, he loves us. All of those things are motivated by God's love. A lot of times in our culture, we are confused by motivations. Some of you you are of a certain belief bent, think, I want to be judged by my good intentions right? If we have more liberal members of our audience here this morning or listening later on podcast, uh, if, if you view yourself a person of, of, of liberal compassion, you want to be judged by your good intentions. So in other words, I created this massive welfare state, bankrupted the country for $18 trillion in debt and climbing, but I'm trying to help people. My intentions were good, so don't judge me. It was good intentions. Now, if you're listening to me this morning and you have a more conservative bent, you like to be judged by your results. We made the trains run on time. We got her done. Except the Bible says one plants, another waters, and then God gives the increase. God is sovereign over the results. It's the old John Quincy Adams line, duty is ours and outcomes belong to God. See, in the kingdom of God, we are not judged by our intentions, nor are we judged by our results. In the kingdom of God, we are judged by our motivations. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. As a man thinketh, so is he. Motivations are what drive us in God's economy. Motivations. Why? Because God is love. And what is love? A motivation. That's why that's the judge. Jesus says, there will come on a day of judgment, people will come to me and say, we did all these wonderful things. I don't know who you are. Depart from me into the den of iniquity. I do not know you. Why do they depart? Love's in action, I thought. These people did wonderful, loving things. What was their motivation? Did they do them for Christ? Or did they do them for themselves? What is the motivation? Intentions are what you meant to do. Results are what you actually did. But motivation is whom or what you did them for. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Motivation. God wants us to love as he loves. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts. Then a service of God, that has to be our primary motivation for why we do what we do. You ever wonder David? David's a pretty wretched husband. An even worse Father. He's a terrible father. His kingdom is split in half. One of his sons rebels. Another one of his sons rapes his stepsister. He's a terrible dad. Not a much better king. Takes a census, violates God's commandments, sends a man off to wrongfully die in a front line in a war because apparently 600 wives aren't good enough. He had to have this guy's too. He's not a good person. Yet the Bible says this is a man after God's own heart. How do we reconcile these things? You see, one thing in David's life is consistent. Because you see a life of really high highs and really low lows. But the one thing that is the plumb line, like when David is confronted after his sin with Bathsheba by Nathan, the prophet, who tells him, thou art the man, he doesn't make excuses. And he accepts responsibility. And after he, after he prays and he fasts and it is God's will that this child would not live, he doesn't get up and shake his fist at God. He gets up and essentially lives the words we see in the book of Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what makes David a man after God's own heart. What is your primary motivation in life? What drives you? That's why you've often heard pastors say, I can tell a lot about where your heart is by what's in your checkbook. Because that's your motivations, right? You really want to know what a person's motivations are, look at the checkbook. That'll tell you every single time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth. Of the Lord's favor. This is the second thing. We need to know about love. Love transforms. Love transforms. Here Jesus is reading. From the words of Isaiah 61. A Messianic prophecy. Of what the ministry of the Messiah to come. Would look like. Now what does it mean to be freed? What does it mean to be healed? If you've been It means you've been transformed. That's what it means.
3: Well, here, part two of Steve's recent message, his Christmas message. What does it mean to love when we come back?
2: to Steve Dace. Check us out online at stevedace.com, where you get show archives and opinions each day. You're listening to Steve Dace.
3: Welcome back to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This hour, we're playing selections from a recent sermon Steve gave to his home church where he was on the preaching staff. This most recent sermon is called, What Does It Mean to Love? It is a Christmas sermon. Here's part two.
0: What does the good news of the gospel do to us? It transforms us. If you've truly heard the gospel truly heard it faith comes by hearing the hearing of the word if you've truly heard the words of the gospel truly heard the word of the god or the word of god you are not the same afterwards are you you're not the same you've been transformed it is no longer i who lives but christ who lives in me i die daily i'm a new creation that powerful scene in the passion where Christ comes to the end, nearly the, near the end of his path. And his mother Mary comes to him to comfort him. And he says, behold, mother, I make all things new. Love transforms us. If you've been coming here regularly or to any church regularly, since you've heard the words of the gospel, since you understood what it meant that God loved you, You can go back to what your life was like before you heard that message and what your life is like now. And it's not the same. doesn't mean it's perfect. In some cases, it may not be better. Peter was living a nice, quiet life as a fisherman in rural Palestine. By the time he gets done listening to the gospel, he ends up hung upside down on a cross. Not exactly your best life now. All right but he's not the same is he He's not the same John is a boy in that culture they didn't they hadn't invented teenagers yet they were smarter than us The apostle John is a boy a mere boy and by the time he is done being transformed by the words of the gospel he is being boiled in a vat of hot oil and when they can't kill him they just drop him off on this island of patmos to die by himself, however long that he lives. Again, not exactly your best life now. May or may not be better by a worldly standard, but it is different, is it not? It is different. You cannot, if you have received the word of God into your heart, if you have received God's love into your heart, you cannot be the same. And if you are, it's because you have not. You cannot be the same. Because love transforms. When we love as God loves, we are transformed. And then we take part in the transformation of others. You know, what Jesus lays out here in Luke 4 from Isaiah 61, this is what his ministry looks like. Did we not see evidence of this everywhere Christ went? Yes. Well, now Jesus looks at us and says, upon this rock I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So what should be happening everywhere we go? If we are his bride and he is our groom and we are his church and not even the gates of hell can prevail against us and everywhere he went, this is what happened. The transformation you just heard him speak of. And then he says, when I leave, you'll do even greater things than you saw me do and I will send you a helper. And... The song you just sang, Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel, you will never have to sing it again. For I will live forever in you. Then, everywhere we go, is this not what should be happening where we go as a church? Should there not be transformation? If, you're not, if your life is not transformed by being a member of this church community that you sit in right now, whether it's in this building or another later on that you're listening to this digitally, go home and get out and go somewhere where it does. Because that is the goal. The goal is not to mark time. The goal is transformation. That is the goal. And to participate in the transformation of others. That's why we go out and seek to plant so many churches here. We want to take part in the transformation of others. Mary, why do you do what you do? To see the transformation of others. That's the goal. For us to be transformed and to be taking part in how God transforms others. And he rolled up the scroll, Jesus, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Number three, love. Love proclaims. Love will proclaim itself. It cannot be hidden. Love will proclaim We cannot hide our light under a bushel. When they told Jesus on Palm Sunday, calm the throng. These people are acting out. Jesus said, if I silence them, the stones would then cry out. The stones would proclaim. David's first wife comes to him when he's celebrating after having united the 12 tribes of Israel. And he removes his outer cloak and he begins dancing. And she says, this is undignified behavior for a king. And David says, I will become even more undignified than this. Love will proclaim. It will. The reason why when you love somebody and don't tell them, you're all worked up inside, is because love wants you to speak up. Love wants to proclaim itself. It does not want to be hidden. Because the source of love is God. Who so loved the world... That he came from paradise to put himself in the womb of a woman. It's hard in a natural sense to raise another man's son. Now you're going to raise God's son. You're going to sit there, you're going to teach the most powerful being in all the universe how to speak. How to walk, run, jump. How to show manners and respect. That's a pretty daunting task when you stop and think about it. It's also pretty daunting that God lowered himself to our point vantage point in order to go through those sorts of things. Set his divinity aside to be with us. Why? Because love will proclaim. Jesus took his message to the halls of power. Yes, he went to the outskirts, but he goes to the temple several times and proclaims. Even lets the powers that be, he lets them know what's up. Love will proclaim itself. Why was the star so bright that night? Why? To proclaim. This, this is what you've been waiting for. This is what you're looking for right here. And that star shone so bright so that you could not miss it. Jesus loved us enough to die for us in broad daylight.
3: We'll be back to hear part three of Steve's message that he recently gave uh, to his home church. What does it mean to love? A story, a sermon, rather, on Christmas. We'll have more in just a few moments.
2: Listening to Steve Dace, the application for your foundation. This is Steve Dace.
3: This hour on the Steve Day Show, hearing segments from a recent sermon Steve gave to his home church where he is on the preaching staff. The name of the sermon, What Does It Mean to Love? It's a Christmas sermon. Here's part three.
1: I want to
0: look at this scripture again. We're going to look at it twice. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing This is the next thing love is. It is bold. Now, let me set the scene for you here. And I use this scripture twice because this is one of my favorite moments in the Gospels. Christ returns from his 40 days in the desert, begins his public ministry, goes to his hometown. And, of course, a prophet is never regarded in his own hometown. He's approximately the age of 30, which, if you know first century Jewish custom, would put him in about the age of eldership because they didn't live until they were 80 back then. Right? So you became a man at 13. Why? How old was Isaiah when, Mo- when Abraham took him out to Mount Moriah? How old was he? 13. That was why, that's why you're fit fit at 13. So he's about 30 years old. This makes him one of the elder members of the synagogue. They hand him this scroll. We just read the previous verses. They didn't tell him what to say. He went and found. So understand, this is the community that all of his life has been doing the math on when he was born and when his mama and daddy were married. And realizing the numbers don't add up, guys. I'm pretty sure it takes nine months. (sighs) Scandalous. The law called for stoning in such cases. So he's been surrounded by this all of his life. In this community. And he walks in, the carpenter's son and he reads from Isaiah 61, in the first person, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then can you imagine the reactions? There's a reason this story ends with them wanting to kill him afterwards. Can you imagine the reaction? Where does this guy get off? There's some, well, given we're in a Jewish community, they're looking at him like this guy's got some real hutzpah, walking in here like this. Keep in mind, they haven't heard him forgive people of their sins yet. They haven't seen him heal people yet. They haven't seen him raise the dead yet. Oh, he's going to show a lot more chutzpah than this. You ain't seen nothing yet. And look how offended they are. And then can you imagine the people that are whispering, I can't believe this. Where does this guy get off? What do you mean? Today, that's about the Messiah. Are you saying you're the Messiah? And he can hear all this. And he looks at him and he says, Today, you thought, oh, you like that? We're going to double down. Today, this is fulfilled among you, right now. Because, yeah, I am the Messiah, and I just walked right through your front door. How do you like them apples? That is some bold. That is some bold. Love is going to make you do bold things like that. It will make you bolder. It will give you a bolder to do things for the ones you love that you would never do before. Men will serenade women in public out of tune boldly for love. Women will pretend to like sporting events for love. We will raise our hands and praise in public for love. We will lay down our lives for one another, for love. You look at Peter after he is transformed by Christ's love. He goes from denying Christ to boldly standing up at the day of Pentecost and saying, that Jesus you crucified is your Messiah. There is no other name under heaven by which you will be saved. Turn or burn, this might be your last chance. That's a lot different than the one who denied him three times before the cock just a few weeks ago. That is because love is bold.
3: Bold. We are listening to selections of Steve's recent Christmas message to his home church where he is on the preaching staff. The name of the message is, What Does It Mean to Love? And this is something that a lot of us get wrong, I believe. Last night we heard a sermon from Steve uh, about what America gets wrong about Christianity and why that is the case. This is more for the body of Christ. What do we get wrong? What do we misunderstand about love? We'll come back and we'll we'll hear part four of Steve's message in just a little bit.
2: To Steve Dace, <music> reminding you that Almighty God is always a majority. This is Steve
3: Dace. You better watch out. You better not cry.
2: Better not. Out, I'm telling
3: More on the Steve Dace Show from Steve Dace's a recent sermon to his home church. What does it mean to love? It's one of his uh, Christmas sermons to his church. Here's part four.
0: Peter is considered the source for the Gospel of Mark. So when he communicates to Mark what he saw, which is considered the oldest of the Gospels according to textual criticism, did he know? Did he know? That this would be considered canon for 2,000 years in Scripture, did he know? I don't know. I bring this up because they don't know how the story ends. They don't know. Many of you are going to name your children after these men. They don't know. They don't know that they're going to be declared saints by variations of the church in centuries to come. They don't know. They don't know. In fact, it's pretty clear that a lot of them thought they would see Christ return in their day. When you look at the way that they write. The tense that they speak in. They don't know. But they did it anyway. They didn't know what the outcome was. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. But they did it anyway. They acted Actions that don't happen if they're not motivated by love. Performed by disciples who had been transformed. Proclaimed boldly by such disciples. You see what I just did there? I just gave you this sermon. Every point we've made so far. I could have saved you guys a lot of time and just done that, right? But they had to go somewhere with all of this now. They had to go I remember when our kids were really little, uh, Noah was about two or three, um, Zoe would have been about four or five, Anna about ten, and uh, because she's Anna, we like, in our house we refer to Anna as Steven Drag, so she likes to ask really snotty, provocative questions at the most inopportune times, and uh, she looked at me once and said, hey daddy, if I don't get married right away after I'm 18, can I still live here at home? And I thought about it and I said, well, you know, I think it probably, yeah, I mean, it's my responsibility probably to take care of you. Of course, you can move out on your own if you want, but as long as you pull your own weight, sure, you don't have, you you can stay. All of a sudden, Noah, I can hear the wheels turning, even in a little two or three-year-old little dude, he's thinking, video games till 25, word, okay? And I can see his eyes get all big, I can just see him, I can see it already, right? Because he is a son of Adam. Yes, he's got really cute chubby cheeks, dimples, right? I get it. But he is still a son of Adam. I can see that little sin nature churning. So I looked at him and I said, now you young man, when you're 18, I did this. You got to go, get out. I'm throwing you out. Get a job. When I take care of yourself, take care of a woman, you got to go. But you princesses, you guys can stay as long as you want. You dude are out. And the door don't swing both ways, and you'll start mowing my lawn the day after your 12th birthday. All right, there we go. Right? But love has to go. Can't stay. It has to go. It wants to spread. If you stay in your cubbyhole, if you stay in your in your in your comfort zone, you're missing out on the best parts of love. Love wants to go. We just celebrated a day we all gorged ourselves. Because a few hundred people got on a rickety boat, risked their lives, including their kids, in unsanitary conditions. And over the course of the next two years, half of them died. Why? Well, they wrote down this compact when they arrived here. Well, they told you what they were motivated by. For the advancement of the Christian religion and the glory of God. They're motivated by love, love for God, love for Christ. That's why they risked their lives. Otherwise, they're like worst parents ever, okay? That's why they did it, guys. Go. Don't stay. Get out. There's a reason we kept that sign over there. When you walk out of here, how many of us look up and look at it? We should do this thing like college football teams do where they, when they walk out of the locker room, they tap whatever the slogan is at the top as they go out on the field. Bob, we should make people jump up there, okay? We should like hold like a step stool, not many of us going to be able to jump up there, and just make people like slap the banner on the, lo- like you do in the locker room when you walk out of here. This is now your mission field. Go. Take what we talk about here on Sundays and go. Take it with you to work, to your families, to your culture, your community. Go. Do not stay. At the end of each of our lives, there is going to be a book of Acts. And it will testify to whom or what we loved. It will. Because your faith is the foundation of your worldview. Your worldview will then be what dictates your beliefs. Your beliefs will then be the motivations for your behaviors your actions. And then those actions will be what testifies to everybody around you where you place your faith. This is the way every human mind works. Because we're all made in the image of God. Philosophy has laws like any other science. And that is one of the first laws of philosophy, what I just shared with you. All of us make decisions this way. The formula is the same. We all think this way. The difference is what we plug into each and every one of these things. That's where the differences come. Show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Show me your works and I'll show you my... So Steve, is it faith and works or works with faith? Yes. Love will go. It will act. It will not stay the same. Ladies, do you want him to say all the same things to you that he said to you? Wouldn't that seem boring? Wouldn't it seem like he's mailing it in? Love will go. And when we look at the book of Acts about your life, what will it say about you? Will it say this? So now faith, hope, and love abide These three, but the greatest of these is love. Will it say that?
3: Listening to portions of Steve's recent message for his home church, What Does It Mean to Love? We'll hear the conclusion of that message when we come back.
2: You're listening to Steve Dace. saying that God is on our side. We're just trying to get on His. This is Steve Dace.
3: Back to wrap up this Steve Dace show for this Wednesday evening. Very Merry Christmas to you. We've been listening to uh, portions of A Christmas sermon that our boss, Steve Dace, gave to his home church recently. The name of the sermon, What Does It Mean to Love? Here is the conclusion of that message.
0: The final thing that love will do, or that love is this morning, love gives. Love gives. When God loves, what does he do? He gives. He gives. Everything that he has. Everything he has. He can't give you more than himself. He gave you everything he has. Even his own son. God holds nothing back when he loves. And neither should we if we're going to love like him. That means, children, when your parents scold you, it's because they love you. When they prosper you, it is because they love you. When they allow you to suffer the consequences for your actions, it is because they love you. And when they rescue you from those consequences, it is because they love you. See what I did there? That's how we love, like Christ loves. This is how he loves us. When you walk into Pastor Bob's office, and you're shacking up with the girl that you're not married to, and he says something to you about it, and you say, but she's hot, And he says, so is hell. It's because he loves you. That's why. So he doesn't always tell you what you want to hear because he loves you. That's why. That's that's love. Is everything in the Bible pleasant? No. Didn't we just do judges? No. A lot of unpleasantness. For those of us who had to write several of those sermons, a lot of us thinking about What happens if someone's got their seven-year-old sitting in the crowd this morning? How are we going to work around this material? Why did God preserve all of that? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to know, even when we live in a culture that we think is decadent and dying today, this isn't his first rodeo. He's been here before. He's got this. If we trust him, that he loves us. Hold nothing back. Love as God loves. The reason even pagans want to take part in the idea of Christmas this time of year is because that's how they want to be loved, too. It's what they want most of all, because they were made to be loved. Why did God make you? To love you. This is why.
3: It's the conclusion of Steve's message, What Does It Mean to Be Loved? Merry Christmas to you. We'll see you again after Christmas. Until then, Micah
2: 6-8. You're listening to Steve Dace.